We are in this series, uh, talks of formation. That's what the Christian journey is. It's a journey of formation, of deconstruction and reconstruction of being formed. Scripture talks about being conformed to the image of Christ. And so when we begin to follow Jesus, we enter into that process of being formed. And that's the language we're using. And today we want to focus on the spiritual practice of silence and the place that it plays in our formation. I don't suppose it's the kindest title you've ever seen, but sometimes it's just good for us to, to put it crashly, shut up and listen. Even when the words we're using seem to be holy and seem to be baptized, sort of verbose holy language prayers, and every once in a while, formation happens only when we will be silent and I don't mean just verbally silent, but when there's a silence in our hearts, and a silence in our lives, a calm, a, a stillness of the water of our souls, we can be formed. I want to make that point today by taking us on a little bit of a different sermonic journey. Actually moving through a story that's found in a combination, they're parallel stories in the book of Isaiah, and then the same story is told in a portion of 2 Kings, and we'll dip in and out of that, but in order to move to make this point and then reflect on it a little bit and experience it, enter into this story with me, and I want you to use your imagination, and to the degree you can do it, put yourself in the year 700 BC. Imagine this, and you're living in Jerusalem behind the walls. Can you hear the, the sounds and smell the smells? 700 BC. Hezekiah is on the throne, and he's a good king. He's led all sorts of reforms, and he's remembered God. He hasn't wandered off like other kings have, strange spiritualities. He said, no, 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 let's follow Yahweh and get the people back on track. And then the sounds change, and we hear machinery off in the distance. We hear sabers being banged against shields, and the word comes that the king of Assyria, who has been defeating the walled cities all around, the lesser cities all around Jerusalem, is going to come and lay siege to Jerusalem. Now, he's got some other political things going on that are motivating him. Jerusalem's not his biggest prize, not going to be his most challenging battle. But Sennacherib, the king that makes his throne in Nineveh, the king of mighty Assyria, is consolidating his vast kingdom. And you're behind the walls in Jerusalem thinking you don't have a chance to stand up against such a mighty warrior and a huge army, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And you hear those sounds. What are you feeling? He's already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel but 20 years earlier, and you've been stewing in that truth. And he's conquered many of the fortified cities of Judea. And the word is that Sennacherib's armies are not the kind of warriors that just come and say, let's fight, sort of a good, clean fight. Then you can bow down. You can come and yield to us. No. His armies are full of bloodlust. They are sort of the Vikings of their time. They love to torture the people they conquered. 
One of their favorite practices was to capture people and then skin them alive and then hang their skins on the walls of the city as a quite graphic warning against anybody who would dare to resist them. And you know this, and you hear the chariots, and you hear the machinery, and you hear the chants, and you hunker down under the doorpost in your house, having no hope at all. Now his armies are camped outside the walls of Jerusalem. You don't just hear them in the distance, now you see them. And they're ready to add Jerusalem, and you and your daughters, and your little sons, and your nieces and nephews, and your spouse to their list of conquered and then exiled people. How you feeling? And then a rider comes to the gates. Uh-oh, now it's starting to happen. What's the rider going to say? A messenger from Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. And he speaks it, this message, quite loudly, so that the people on the walls can hear it. And he speaks it in the language of the people, so they can hear and understand what he's saying. And he attempts to undermine their hope in their king, Hezekiah, and through him, their hope in the God of Israel. And he says this, this is recorded in 2 Kings 18. Listen to this. Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. I read this and I thought of these infamous words. If you eat that, God doesn't want you to eat that because you'll know just what he knows. You will not die. You cannot del- he cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and your own fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land just like this one. There's exile language there. It'll be just like this one. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death, he says. Man, can you just hear the hearts beginning to lean toward him? Do not listen to Hezekiah. How many times is he going to say that? He is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And of course, there he's referencing, referring to all the different lesser city-states that he's conquered. Anybody beat me yet? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Nope, that fell 20 years ago. Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Complete undermining. And everybody heard it. And seed is planted, a seed of doubt, a seed of, well, boy, what if he's right? Choose life, not death. 
They knew that surrender would mean deportation, slavery really, and who knows what other horrors. Resistance, though, would mean certain death, and not a clean, quick death. What kind of pictures are going through your mind as you're there? What kind of thoughts and doubts and fears are ignited as you hear that message? The situation seemed to be hopeless. And Hezekiah knew what was going on. And what he does was bright, it was brilliant, it was faithful. He goes to the prophet Isaiah and he says, I'm, I'm in trouble here, Isaiah. Will you seek the Lord with and for me? Will you pray? And Isaiah the prophet does seek the Lord. He knows what's going on too. He does inquire of God. He does, does go to God and say, speak to me so that I can speak a message of encouragement to the king. The king has sought you through me. And here's what Isaiah says, recorded in Isaiah 37. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the understandings of the king of Assyria have blasphemy, blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, the king, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. Tell your master that. And then in 2 Kings 19, Isaiah's message is recorded as this. He will not enter this city. We need to see these together. They together probably give the most complete um, verbiage of the prophet. He will not, this Assyrian king will not enter this city or even shoot one arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build siege ramps against it. So if the walls were up, one of the tactics for, for taking the city was to painfully and slowly, it would take sometimes over a year, you know, they'd be see, two or three years, these, cities, these walled cities are under siege. They would build a ramp, like an on-ramp, and then they could go over the wall that way. And lots of people died building that, that ramp, but that was one of the tactics. He will not build a ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, your servant. Hearing nothing in response to his initial uh, message, a Syrian king sends another message, this time in the form of a letter. And here's what that letter said. It says, Hezekiah, this is in 2 Kings 19, received the letter from the messengers and read it. And then the, the message basically reiterates, the letter reiterates the first, the verbal message. And here's how the response uh, here's the response that came. And he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. So picture that now. Hezekiah's got this letter. He's already heard the message. He's talking to Isaiah, pray for us. Pray. Now he's praying with us. He goes, takes the letter himself, goes up to the temple, quite graphic, lays that letter full of threats out on the altar. And it's as though he says to God, do you see this? Read it. You can read it. 
This thing's got me shaking in my boots or my sandals, whatever the appropriate application would be. He went up and he, to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between cherubim, cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. In fact, you have made heaven and earth. Listen, Lord, give ear and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib. These words that he has sent to ridicule the living God. That's how Hezekiah saw this. That's how we need to see it too, by the way, just a little inside. You understand? When, when you are ridiculed, ridiculed, when you are attacked, when your faith is threatened, God is threatened by somebody. God is attacked. You are that precious to him. It's kind of like God might be saying, look, you trip my child, you trip me. You mess with my child, you mess with me. Sometimes we feel like we're all alone and we're the only ones with a target on our back. And I find, at least in my experience, when I recognize, wait a minute, God loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus has taken and, and, and replaced condemnation with mercy. He makes all things beautiful in me. So when somebody attacks me and my face is threatened, they're not just attacking me. They're attacking the Lord that loves me as well. Sometimes that gives us strength to know we're not alone in this attack. And to remember, as I've said often, we're not going down unless Jesus goes down. And he ain't going down. So that's how Hezekiah sees this attack. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands they have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord God. That's Hezekiah's prayer. And God does listen, he does hear, and he does respond. And the response is recorded in chapter 19, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian camp. That put a dent in the sword. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all these dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew and returned to Nineveh and stayed there without shooting an arrow, without building a ramp, without coming into the city. What's more, a decade or two later, Sennacherib was in his temple. One day while he was worshiping in that temple of his god Nisroch, one of his sons killed him with the sword, and then escaped to the land of Ararat. And one of his sons took the throne. So you got your head around that story and around what happened. Now, it wasn't all perfectly clean. Some political maneuverings happened. There were some historical things going on that God used to contribute to the fulfillment of his will. It doesn't mean it wasn't God. Sennacherib, 
hears that there's another large army coming, pursuing him, and he says, why should I hang around for this little prize, Judah, when there's, I'm going to have to fight this other army? It might be time to go home. I'll go regroup. That especially after so many of his soldiers, through whatever means, became sick and died. And so he leaves. But it was still God using historical maneuverings to fulfill his will and to make things happen. And when the poets recall what happened on that day, and they think about the difference between the way they were feeling the day before and the way they felt when they saw and heard that machinery again, except this time going back down the road, back to Nineveh from where they came. It's recorded in a psalm, and it's actually the focus, all of that to build to this. That psalm is the focus of our message today. And it's Psalm 46. That's the context most scholars believe for Psalm 46. Listen to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, and this was sung. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. And God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the shields with fire. He says, and here we go, we're formed through listening. He says, in the midst of all of this experience, emotional and and crazy experience that his people have had, he says, be still. And know that I am God. Be calm and know that I am God. Be silent and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob are the walls that protect us. He's our fortress. Psalm 46, written out of the experience, this crazy experience the people of Jerusalem just had. All of that to ask you this one question. Formed through listening. Be still and know that I am God. It's a question the psalmist answers pretty clearly, and here's the question. When life is threatening to drown you, as it is prone to do periodically, isn't it? When it's circumstantial undertoes seem as though they have you firmly by the ankle and are pulling you down to the bottom and out to sea. What's the key to keeping your head above water? 
The Psalms answer, cease striving and remember. Stop fretting and encounter. Be quiet and perceive. Shut up and listen. For God is speaking. Be still and know in an embracing, intimate, experiential way. Instead of increasing worrisome chatter when those undertoes of life hit, practice silence. Be faithful and be formed. The formational power of silence. Something we're not used to. Something that makes us uncomfortable, actually. Ever been a person or been around a person who is so uncomfortable with silence that any gap, they need to fill it with words or fill it with a radio or fill it with TV. But 20 years ago, I began to realize I never have any time where I'm not filling my brain with something because I need to keep my brain busy all the time. It needs to be constantly entertained. I never have any time to reflect. And so about 20 years ago, I said, well, one little simple change I'm going to make that hopefully will lead to something more substantial is, it's as simple as this, little practices. Okay, from now on, when I'm in the car, no radio until noon. Now, there are days, I'll admit to you, when I'm going like, is it noon yet? Man, oh, two more minutes. What's well, two more minutes? No, no, not till noon. And it is something that in the mornings I got to where I even enjoyed that, where I'd be driving and I'd, well, at least I can think because there's, there's nothing else going on filling my brain for me. I have a little semi sort of pocket of silence where I can at least think or at least have an option to think. And little practices like that, we, if we practice those things, we can maybe move toward regaining the formational power of silence. Be still, be silent, be quiet. Shut up and let me form you through the silence. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it doesn't seem natural. I know every message you get from every angle of life works against the value of silence. But I want you to lean into it, God says. And so we're going to lean into it in a pretty easy, but maybe um, initiative way, initiating way this morning. I'm going to ask the band if you would uh, make your way up now as we move, move uh, through this. When life is threatening to drown you and its circumstantial undertoes seem to have you by the ankle and are pulling you down, what's the secret to keeping your head above water? Be still. Take a breath. Consider who I am and what I've done. And know that I am God. As one commentator put it, as your world crumbles around you, the call from Scripture is don't flinch in faith in God. Stand still. Not because of a self-made confidence. Not because you are the most composed person in the face of disaster. Not because you've seen it all. Be still because of what you know about God. It is God and his past that provides calm for our future. It's God's past, his history, that provides calm for our future. Know that he is God. Know it. 
not merely intellectually, but practically, spiritually, emotionally. He is your God. He is the ruler, this commentator says, of the kingdoms of the earth and the all-powerful creator of the universe. And then he finishes with this. If you are the last man or woman standing, be still. Be silent. Be calm. Cease striving. And know. So what I want to do is enter into uh, what will feel like hours of silence. It's going to be minutes, really. And I actually, we've planned to not have music behind this to give us extra discomfort. <laughs> but we're going to be silent, silent. And this isn't emptying the mind. This is concentrating and knowing that he is God. And I'm going to introduce three themes, three observations from this idea of a silence that forms us, a Christian silence, a Christian formation. And I'm going to state them, and I want to encourage you to be silent and listen. See what that prompts. If uh, thoughts come to mind, even if you're not sure it's God, maybe you want to make a note or text yourself that message so you can come back and be silent thinking about it a little more later in context of who is God, what's he want to do, What's he teaching us, teaching me? How can I find strength there? Okay? Silence. Weird. But formational. Here's the first observation or point to be made that I encourage you to reflect on about this idea of silence. The first challenge is to discover You know, there can be no true knowing God without true silence or stillness. Reflect on that. Be silent. Be still. <sighs> is that true? How has that been violated in your life? Let the Lord speak to you. We're not emptying our minds. We're encountering God, letting him inform us through our silence. There can be no true knowing without true silence or stillness. Are you willing to discover the truth of that? Second, realize this. Discover, realize, stillness is a choice. Silence is a choice. It's a command, therefore it can be chosen. It's not something you wait for. It's something you initiate. Let God speak to you in silence about that. 
not something you wait for, something you initiate. It can be chosen. Did you think that that kind of stillness was something you could experience only when it pounced upon you? Are you willing to realize that, nope, that happens, but it's something you choose? You might need to make a note to yourself. Third, Consider this and grasp this. Stillness, this silence that forms us as Christians, is not a passive emptying of the mind. It's an active filling the mind with the experience of God and the actual experience reacquainting with the history of God. It's not a passive emptying of the mind. It's an active filling of, mind, of the mind with the experience of God, the history of God, the perfect record of God. Be silent around that concept for a moment. Father, some of us need healing in order to be formed. Some of us need from you the antidote for the poison of busyness. We're not talking about longing for laziness. Simply the ability to sometimes take a breath, be still. When it's counterintuitive, to be calm. To make sure the frenetic doesn't dominate the gracious. And we can say, whatever comes, I know my God is with me. And he makes all things beautiful. And he causes all things to work together for good even not so beautiful things for those who love him are called according to his purpose. O oh Lord, 
form us through silence. Form us.